Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. There is so much we can do to make this world a kind of better, happier place. There is so much we can do to change the world. If you want to support It's Good to Know and the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. In this episode, Hani Malecki talks with Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Ideas That Change the World. It's a podcast that we have with Rabbi Manus Friedman, who we're privileged to have weekly with us, and I'm your host, Hani Malecki. But today we have a new guest who has come in all the way from London, Belgrave, London, I think is what it's called, right? And uh, his name is Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson. He's a prolific author and, of course, a good friend going back. And so we're really, really happy to have you here. So welcome, Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson. And the topic that we wanted to discuss today, to jump right into it, is obviously something which is uh, on everybody's minds because this week we had the, or this past Shabbos, we had the massacre in Pittsburgh. And everybody's talking about it, and there's a lot of angles on this, and people saying, some people saying, we shouldn't be talking about this, let's just mourn. And there's just so many ways to to approach this. So, um, unfortunately, this will be the topic for today, to understand what is the correct, the Jewish, the Hasidic, the wholesome approach to um, targeting, the to understanding the various um, angles and the various uh, emotions and responses that we have. And I think that in order to have this conversation, we have to start first and foremost with, is it too soon to talk? One of the interesting things that I've been seeing all over the place is it's too soon to talk. Don't want to hear about Trump. We don't want to hear about gun control. We don't want to hear about uh, about whatever it is, also police. And somehow, whether you're mentioning things or you're saying, please don't mention these things, that is becoming a bit of the, of the conversation. And I'm wondering myself, is it okay for us to be talking about anything except for the, the people who passed and their families? So uh, I guess let's start with uh, Rabbi Collinson. You're here uh, as a guest. Of all topics <laughs> we could have chosen to speak about. Um, I, I think in situations like this, I tend to try to look into uh, the past, into history, into the one, the, the great examples of those who came before us, and in particular, as a Lubavitcher Chassid, I try to look into how the Rebbe reacted to situations like this, to give us a template for how to react in kind. And the one example that comes to mind, among unfortunately many others, is the massacre in um, Malot. <clears throat> Excuse me, there was a terrible massacre where terrorists came and they shot up a school, a Jewish school, a vocational school, and they took uh, tens of lives. And uh, the scene actually, uh, when I read the reports, it came, you know, what the police officer in Pittsburgh said, there were some very strong parallels. The scene was gruesome, was horrific. There was sidurim that were bloodstained. And, um, and uh, in that instance, actually, I think you have a, a really interesting paradigm for situations like this, perhaps, where initially, when the Rebbe received the news, there was a silence, a period of time when the Rebbe didn't really react or respond. Um, 
some some say it took th- three days till the message came out. Rabbi Friedman could correct that because maybe he, I'm sure he knows better. He, he remembers maybe or heard from those who were around. But after a few days passed, that's when the Rebbe sent back a very well-known message by now, a telegram that said, or meaning that through continued building, they'll be comforted. And I think that there you capture the, both the weight, both the inappropriateness of immediate reaction. And we do live in a world that, 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 that demands immediate reaction, immediate opinion, immediate analysis. And, and, and the Rebbe in that respect showed that that's not appropriate at all. But some days later, the Rebbe came with that positive message to transform and to somehow redeem and to somehow re- rework and, and, and channel the negative energy, that void, that vacuum created through the loss of life through increased energy, dedication, building, and so forth. And what's actually interesting about that event <clears throat> is that the Rebbe argued to some mystical maybe idea of spiritual poetic justice where the Rebbe said that the best form of building would be to actually rebuild the school, to expand the school, to include more students. And the Rebbe said to to dedicate and sponsor more Siddurim in particular. The Rebbe said this to the family of, of a Mashpia Zilberstrom who passed away, uh, sadly, so that they should specifically create a fund that would go towards Siddurim because the very place, not just physical location, but the very, uh, very um, activity they were engaged in when their lives were taken should not only not discontinue, but should somehow gain momentum, gain energy. And, and, and there are, if I understand correctly, that serves as some type of a template. Yeah, it was, it was, it was actually after Shiva. So it was seven days later. Seven days, wow. wow. So we're not even seven days later. Now we've got to be careful. <laughs> yeah, so, so what are we supposed to do in those first seven days? What, what exactly is grieving? And, I, and, I, and I'm, I agree with you that we have to have more respect for the grieving process. You can't skip it. So, you know, to come along the same day or the next day and say, the healing must begin. No, 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 no. Not only is it too soon, there are certain griefs that don't heal and that they shouldn't. Whether it's fortunate or unfortunate that time heals all wounds. Chazoka Nishkach Menalev. When it's necessary for survival, you do that. But who says it's a good thing to stop grieving, to skip it? That's altogether. Right? So we, we need a little more appreciation, a little more insight into what exactly is grieving. It's not a depression. It's not, a, it's not pathological. What, what is the virtue of it? How do you do it? We've turned it into a non-event, and it's... Right, right. I would maybe go a step further and say that life is different now to when it was during that massacre. What Do, we, do you know what, what year that was in, in Malot in Israel? It was Krachabad. It was in Krachabad. So that was, it was probably 40, 50, 60 years ago even. And things that the whole world is different, right? So now everything's immediate. We find out information immediately and we respond immediately. And even if you look at uh, the Chabad Shluchim, how they've been responding uh, the last week, it was straight from the get-go. Increase mitzvahs, increase mitzvahs, do this, bring light to the world, etc., etc. 
Is that too too soon? If you're talking about shluchim elsewhere, shluchim in in London or shluchim in Australia, for their community, that's the reaction. Use this as motivation for people in Pittsburgh, for people close to the event. I tell you, it's very interesting because I. I was I was in shock. I was I was I was in shock. It was difficult to process. Then actually, someone from my community wrote to me, Mendel. I think it would be appropriate to send a message to our community. And my impulse was first to say no words and all of that. But that's not what he wanted from me. That's not what he needed from me. He needed direction. He needed to know what does the rabbi say? What does Judaism say? And because I needed to get it out so quickly, I borrowed from a template that was being used. Um, that was beautiful, and it had a number of points of what you can do for the. And it's there's a website that Chabad.org, which is of course the the premier Jewish website. And the first point was do the mezuzah campaign and do a mitzvah and so forth. The second point is if you want to send condolences, you could write a note and the shliach will hand deliver it. And I made a very conscious decision to switch the two around. And I'm personally very sensitive to this particular point because in the same way that some people say don't politicize things like this, I do feel that there is a certain cynic out there. There's a certain sense that's very sensitive. Let's first and foremost empathize. Write the condolence note. That's step one. Show you care. Show it matters. It's This is human life that's lost. To jump over that, as you put it, so I think eloquently, to skip it over is to is to ignore the the the, the loss of of life is to is to be callous. You could be callous about it one way or another, and I think that spiritualizing it too soon in a way is glossing over the pain, the loss. And in but but the distinction drawn between the local community and beyond is, I think, brilliant. It's very true because at the end of the day, naturally, you know, the communities around the world are in shock, but they could be galvanized to do and to add light and to add mitzvahs. Um, but it is interesting what you said before. Rabbi Shamshul Varhirsh has a beautiful vart. Um, he says the, the word for mourning is avil, but the same letter spelled the word avil, which means however. And he says the reason for that is because it's not true that time heals a loss completely. There's always a subtle, lingering, looming avil. However, there's a life is good except for or but for, and and that comes to the fore very often during milestones and so on, and etc. So there's that element, and there's also another theme in the Rebbe's letters, exactly to the point of Rabbi Friedman, is that the Rebbe says that the system of avelos in halacha reflects the depths and the process of the human condition itself. You have the first day which has its own degree of severity, which diminishes to the first three days, and then this shiva and shleishim and so forth. All of that, the Rebbe says, is not a reflective of the journey of the soul that departed, because for it, the very first moment is liberation, when we understand that physical existence is a certain, is the captivity of soul, the the inhibition of soul. Um, But rather, all of that reflects the need for the the people left behind, to process the pain. And so actually not practicing Avelos is not in sync with Halacha, which means to say, glossing over and saying, let's man up or let's toughen up or let's not. So So you just said something really fascinating and thankfully I don't have a lot of experience with this. Uh, Avelos is for us, not for the departed. 
I never, I mean, I haven't really had the opportunity to think about that much, but that's, uh, that's really a, an amazing uh, thought when you think about it, that, that the Torah wants us to just take a break for a second and process it. Just process that, yes, even though that in the big, in the big scheme of things, uh, when a terrible thing happens or a tragic thing happens, um, like we were discussing last week, everything is good even if we don't understand it. And of course, we would never try to understand what happened in Pittsburgh. But God is good and everything that comes from God must somehow ultimately be good, even if it's something that is beyond our comprehension. But even though that is the case, because it is bad for us, that's a legitimate and necessary thing for us to actually experience the pain, not to shove it away and to, and to embrace the pain almost. Go for, for the, the journey. In fact, the Mishnah says, don't console a person while his um, funeral is in front Before. of him, right? Um, somebody asked the, the Rebbe Rashab, I believe it was. On the, in the davening on Yom Kippur, we read about the ten martyrs, and people cry. And he asked the Rebbe, isn't that a little hokey? I mean, what, are you crying over Rabbi Akiva? You, didn't, you never knew Rabbi Akiva. And some of those other names you'd never even heard of before at all. And you're sitting there crying. What are you crying about? It It feels like, you know, crying at a sad movie or something. And it's not it's not a it's not a real pneumistica thing. So so the Rebbe said, you're crying that Klippa has such effect on Kedusha. So it's a universal thing. It's not Rabbi Akiva. It's any holiness that is harmed, seemingly, by unholiness. So th there's a difference between the people in Pittsburgh mm. who are grieving for the people who died, right. whereas people in Australia are shocked that evil could be so... Amazing. Yeah. yeah? yeah, what a, yeah what That's a very outlook. important thing. So for the people in Australia to say, how should we handle this evil? Well, more light. Okay, great. It's not a replacement for the grief of those who are close by, or who right. know those people. If it's personal, it's a whole different grief. Yeah. And, and I think in addition to that, though, for the, for the community in London and Australia, sheer, shearing in the grieving itself is also a spirit, is also a spiritual act. The, allowing that sense of, of oneness, of brotherhood to overcome you and overwhelm you, and to take that in, take it to to take in the pain, and to say, "That was me. Part of me was lost. A part of me was killed. This wasn't." And as you put it, it wasn't about the Jew in Pittsburgh. The guy said, "All Jews." It was targeted at the people, Am Yisrael. But also, so there's there's different layers to to it, and it's very interesting that I a number I read a number of 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 of, uh, of accounts of personal um, accounts of Holocaust survivors who came to see the Rebbe. And they expected that the Rebbe would do what most leaders, spiritual or otherwise, did, which is to sort of gloss over and and the Rebbe stopped them and said, how many children did you have? How many children did you lose? How many siblings? What were their names? Tell me about them. It's And at that point, something would open and they would cry and the Rebbe would cry with them. And that was the healing. Yeah. 
holding it in, I mean, there's so much now we know a lot about this topic. It used to be assumed that that getting over it means not thinking about it. But the truth is that's not getting over it. And it actually manifests in horrific ways later on in life. I, 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 there's a story I know close up, but I won't go into too many details because it can give it away. But there's a someone I know very well who 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 has a sibling who who passed away from a certain illness at a certain age. And he was a child. And when he reached that age, he became very ill for a period of time. And he had no clue what it was. And the doctors didn't know. And it was later realized that that was the same age his brother had been in. And, and subconsciously, he was afraid of what could happen to him. Because when he was a child... He hadn't processed it because his parents had been told only if he should raise it, then you should talk about it. So I, I think that Rabbi Friedman is, 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 is spot on about how skipping over is not even healing. It's actually harming. And that's built into the halachic system, which reflects the human condition. Right. So let's get slightly controversial for a second. So this isn't the, the first massacre that's happened on American soil. We, we've, in the last couple of years especially, we've been seeing a lot of massacres in schools um, in other churches, etc. And invariably, one of the first things you'll see, even before you hear the account of what happened, is a debate on gun control. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not going there. I, I understand both sides of this, uh, of this uh, debate. But is that appropriate? Because, okay, so we're looking at this as Jews and, uh, and, and uh, you know, and, and how we're going to grieve or how we're going to respond to this attack on us. Are we allowed to try to solve the issue? In other words, if the people think that armed guards is the right answer or mental health is the right answer, is that something that's appropriate to bring up in the first day, the first seven days, even the first 30 days or a year? Or if a person thinks that that uh, gun control is the answer, is that something that's appropriate to, to bring up? And even in the Pittsburgh massacre, there's so many uh, parallel things about anti-Semitism, um, politicians, et cetera, et cetera. Are these ever going to be appropriate to bring up side by side? Or could you, could you say that's just inappropriate? Or could you say, one second, we're trying to make sure this doesn't happen again? Who's trying to make sure it doesn't happen again? The average guy in the street? Now, come on. We're in a democracy. The average guy in the street is the government. Is, that's, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> so certainly in the first week, it's totally inappropriate. When you go to visit, God forbid, you go to visit a, a person who's grieving in the shiva, you don't go there to ease his pain. You go there to share the pain. You don't go there to solve his problems. That's, that's, it's, it's insulting. People, people get, and people say it, they get so offended when you come there and you say, I understand your pain. Do me a favor. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason why you're not allowed to begin a conversation until the, the other, they open up. Yes. Because you have no right to speak. Yeah. So what are you there for? You're there to, to feel the pain, share the pain. So that, that's for sure. Also, I, I'm, I can give you my personal opinion about guns, but that, that's not chassidus and it's not Yiddishkeit and it's not, you know. No. The question of anti-Semitism is a Jewish question. Is this a return of anti-Semitism? Has America become anti-Semitic? Should every Jew everywhere in the world suddenly become paranoid? So the question is, what is anti-Semitism? And I have a feeling that People have tried for the, for the longest time 
to analyze anti-Semitism, to explain it, to understand it, to even rationalize it. Let me let me interrupt you because I think I know where you're going, and this took me by surprise. Um, I was watching a fairly influential person in our community um, making a statement on Instagram about what had happened, and he said something to the effect of, "It's terrible that we that the Jews were attacked because of their beliefs," and I straight away actually uh, it's somebody who I'm close to, so I contacted them about it, and. This anti-Semitism is not quite about beliefs, is it? Is it seems to be a completely different breed of uh, of let's call it racism. It's, I don't know if racism is the correct word for anti-Semitism, but what is it exactly? It doesn't seem to be. Hey, I don't like the way that the relationships that you're having. It doesn't seem to be. I don't like your skin color. It doesn't seem to be. Uh, um, I don't like your opinions or the way that you do things. In fact, you could have a perfectly good Jew who's the right skin color, so to speak. He's the, got the right opinions. He converted to Christianity, and they hate him. What's what is anti-Semitism? We saw that in Germany. They were Germans. They were married to Germans. They and didn't didn't make any difference, right? So the, these attempts at analyzing different kinds of anti-Semitism. This was a religious anti-Semitism. This was a cultural anti-Semitism. This was a political anti-Semitism. Bottom line, anti-Semitism is irrational. And any any attempt at making sense of it is, is futile. If it's irrational, then what is it? I think, I think that, um, first of all, there's a lot of books and a lot of great work on the subject of anti-Semitism. And all of them demonstrate that anti-Semitism is the one racism that defies all definitions. Right. We were both called capitalists and socialists and communists and cosmopolitan and, you know, everything and its opposite we've been called. But if you want to take the Jewish perspective, because as, as Rabbi Freeman said, after all, we're, what we're trying to share here is, is what, what, what does Judaism have to say about it? Essentially, as I understand it, although there are references in Tanakh and Torah before Matan Torah for a certain what you would call today perhaps anti-Semitism. You have instances, for example, Ivri, Avram being called an other, and according to the Medish, other because of his beliefs. So the, the otherness first begins with Avram. Then you have a Mitzrayim, I mean, straight up. Was they, it because of his beliefs for Avram? Uh, the whole world stood on one side and Avram was willing to stand on the other, yeah. That's I, that's a, that's the ideological differences. It's not anti-Semitism, it's ideological difference. It happens to be that his belief was monotheism and theirs was polytheism or paganism. In Mitzrayim, you have the same thing that they wouldn't sit at the table with, with the Jewish people, the Ivrim. Remember, Yosef separates. You, you, yeah, they, that's because the Yidden, they, they, they sacrificed the, the, the ram and the sheep and the, the Egyptians worshiped. But no, be, so that's the point I want to make. There have been many who have said, "Oh, the first that the first instance of anti-Semitism was when when um, Moshe stood up to the Mitzri who was beating up on the Jew." That was personal, if you read the Rashi and the Medrash. So the Gemara says very clearly that that why is it called Har Sinai? So it's obviously it's a play on words to some extent. It's Sinai Melash and Sina, which means that from when the Torah was given at Sinai, that's when the hate of the nations against us begins. So if you want to talk about the the beginning point of anti-Semitism from at least this particular source text, it's when the Torah was given. 
and why. Here we have a very, very, it's a very basic explanation. Base, we represent something. It is our beliefs. It's what we represent. It's the idea of Hashem Echad and all that it represents. That's what the nations of the world consciously or subconsciously, and in most instances subconsciously, couldn't tolerate, couldn't bear. The idea that we're an instrument to civilize the nations in so many areas and so forth. And I, I have seen the Rebbe basically say this. The, the Rebbe basically say that that's at the root of Hitlerism. And once you understand what's at the root of Hitlerism, you know how to combat and ultimately vanquish Hitlerism, which is to become more Jewish, to identify and embrace your Judaism much greater, because the very thing they want to take from you, you shouldn't allow or give up willingly. So it's a different perspective, but uh, the way I think the beer is out. The way I've understood it is maybe a little bit differently. I'm sorry, I Go just ahead. want to jump in, because this is actually shocking, and I think... Uh, <laughs> I I do something that I probably shouldn't do as often as I do it, but I quote Hitler quite regularly. And I know it's something I'm, I'm, I'm very, you talked about controversials, and not everyone enjoys hearing peace of mind Kampf. But the reality is if you read through what he said and what he spoke about, this is exactly what he said. We invented the Ten Commandments. We invented the conscience. It's a blemish on the soul like circumcision for the body. The Hitler youth sung about how they're pagans and they want to be pagans again. All of these things, in his words, actually, more so than most anti-Semites in history, become very crystal clear. So it's interesting. I have a trainer who I work with, and he's a, he loves the Bible, and he loves Jewish people. And he asked me a, a question from a very innocent place. This wasn't a racist question. He says, what is up with the Jews being in control of Hollywood and the banks and the media, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera, because... I, I, perhaps the racist thing is to say that it's a Jewish monopoly, but there's no question about it objectively that Jews are there are a lot of Jews in positions of power in almost all these areas. Uh, for example, philanthropy. I'm always amazed that the Jews are at the top of philanthropy. Um, and my answer to him is, it's a soul. It's not our opinions. It's not how we were raised. It's not how um, how we uh, what we were told to do. It's some, there's a drive inside the Yiddish neshama that pushes a Jew to strive. So he will strive for excellence, and sometimes the excellence will be in, in, in work. Sometimes it will be in spirituality. And unfortunately, as we saw with Bernie Madoff, we have sometimes we have excellence in evil. Okay? Now, and I think that anti-Semitism is a spiritual thing like that. In other words, the same way that we have this drive that there are people out there who are conscious somehow to the, to this um, to this neshama that we have, and it hurts them, and it, it, they hate it. You know, does that make any sense, Rabbi Friedman? What would is uh, this is my uh, <laughs> did I make that up, or is there something to it? So that's another way of saying it's irrational, <laughs> right? It's it's just a like the most consistent fact of history. Yeah. The most reliable, predictable, no matter where you go. And it's like, but here, here's another thing. Is America going anti-Semitic? Anti-Semitism raised its ugly head. You don't know whether a country is anti-Semitic by an event. You know whether the country is anti-Semitic by its response to the event. And, and the response has been beautiful. It's amazing, concise, and to the point. What a powerful thing! Yeah. So there's there's this there's this is this the issue. There's hate, and there is the hater. 
we're very ambitious and we're very noble in our desire to eliminate all hate. Right? All, all the, the bleeding heart liberals, you know, no hate, everybody, no going to hate anybody. Whoa, that's an ambitious uh, plan. I, I don't know how you eradicate hate, but can you stop the hater? <laughs> I mean, that's like doable. Stop the hater. Maybe someday we'll get to eliminating all hate. So if you say, you know, there are people who hate Jews. Okay. I hate broccoli. I mean, like, <laughs> you, you hate that you love. It's up to you who you hate, who you love. I'm not going to tell you who to love. I'm not going to tell you who to hate. But behavior, morality, the Ten Commandments, doesn't tell you who to love and who to hate. But it tells you don't kill the people you hate. And don't commit adultery with the people you love. <laughs> so control your love and control your hate. But, you know, oh, there's hatred. Yes, there's hatred. That's not what scares me. It's the hater, not the hate. I, I think, I, just to, to, to jump in on that, um, there were disgruntled people 100 years ago. There were people who were bullied 200 years ago. They didn't commit mass murder. I, I think this allowance to act on your anger is really fundamentally what's at the core of all of the, uh, many of these shootings. There's a, maybe it's to do with the certain sense that you, your inner, your truth, right? This notion of how do you feel as if your feelings, your subjective, infantile, fluctuating, immature, and amateur feelings can arbitrate truth. But somehow there's this moral, in this moral relativistic world, what defines truth for you, how you feel about something, then you acting on your truth means acting on how you feel. That's probably one of the greatest undermining uh, features of, 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 of modern society. And you know, and this, this reminds me of a completely separate topic, but so powerful here, and that is the Rebus campaign for a moment of silence in schools, um, where the idea would be, and the Rebbe tried to make it as much as possible a non-religious um, idea that, that kids would sit down for, for, at the beginning of the day for a minute and just think about the world around them and think about how it happens without any guidance at all. Um, and I, from my understanding, the point was that just this awareness that there's something greater, right? And, and people have so many names for this thing that's greater, karma, universe, God. But having that awareness for God um, gives you that ability to control those actions, to not act on everything and to realize that there's something much bigger. And perhaps that's the correct response. <laughs> like everybody's going out and talking about gun control and armed guards and mental health. You got to go back to the root, which is let's, let's the, let people understand that there is something greater. It's not just about us and our experiences and our relationships. There's, there's a whole bigger deal out there. I want, I want to go back for a moment to what you said earlier about control, world control, and that. First of all, on a lighter note, the friend of mine, he, he says how he's in the Lower East Side looking for a minion once. There were nine men, one short. They went out to ask the guy if he's Jewish. He said, yeah, but he's not interested in organized religion. Mm. <laughs> so he tells him, sir, if we were organized, we'd have a minion. <laughs> but th this notion, Nietzsche himself said, by the way, that the only nation that if they so desired could control the world are the Jewish people. And the fact that they aren't controlling the world 
towards particular ends demonstrates their lack of desire. And I think that's a very, I, I'm, 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 I'm not quoting it exactly, but that was the essence of it. Ironically, in this particular case, what's unusual is that we have the motive, we have the intent, and we have the very words of this monster who said, basically, the reason he put up that post, he was targeting this shul and he was targeting the Jewish people, was was actually because of this notion of of allowing immigrants in and so forth, and I and I think I think that he was targeting a certain value, a certain. Uh, it was uh, without you know. And I don't, let's we said enough <laughs> said about enough said about. Uh, yeah. So let's jump to a final topic because we've covered a lot here today, and that is. I think perhaps one of a bit of a religious malady, because what I've been seeing a lot is people saying, we got to look inside ourselves and see why Hashem brought this tragedy upon the Jewish people and, and see the tragedy in ourselves and do Teshuva to, to fix something up. So I responded to somebody who said that and Lubavitcher, I, and I said, you'd probably do well to learn the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's opinion on the Holocaust. And uh, and that it wasn't a punishment, and it wasn't the kind of thing that we have to look inside and see what happened, etc., etc. They ever had a completely different approach, which was basically that the Jewish people did not deserve this. Why did it happen? We don't know. It sounds like blaming the victim. Yeah, you must have done something wrong. It must be your fault. You're trying to justify God by throwing the victims under the bus. So that's what I said. So I said, that's the Rebbe's approach. But then he comes right back to me and says, but look at the Rambam. The Rambam says that whenever a tragedy happens to the Jewish people, we should look inside and consider our own actions. So I said, yeah, that wasn't Dershvi. But, you know, that where things have changed, and now we live in a time of Tinnik Shanishba, where you perhaps can say that, Jew, that we're not responsible f- completely for our actions because of the spiritual and physical destruction that thousands of years of exile has done, that we just don't even know wh- where to look anymore, whether we grew up religious or not. But, but at the end of the day, in the 1400s, that was the case too, right? And, uh, and the Friedrich Rebbe mentioned it in 1941 said something about look inside and do to show it that was during before and during the fact by the way as a, it was a call to action to avoid to avert before the fact we always when there's always a when there's a crisis we always try to remedy the crisis spiritually but but applying blame thereafter if, if you want to know i'll put it somewhat provocatively you know everyone has their buttons <laughs> if you wanted to push the rebbe's button this is the type of thing you would say it happened on a few occasions throughout the Nisias. There were some who got up uh, during the Gulf War around that time, someone who said there's going to be another Holocaust. I mean, Rabbi Friedman, you remember this. You were living through it. He said there would be another Holocaust, and it's going to be because the Israelis are raising pigs and they're Chal Shabbos and they're eating shratzim, etc. These are the words. I, I, I Actually, you, you can look it up and you can read it. It's horrific. And the Rebbe's reactions were so visceral, were so strong, were so unequivocal. And I have to say, on some level, maybe you, maybe you won't be comfortable with it, but in a way where, because that individual said what he did, we have some of the most incredible, um, language, the ideas that the Rebbe spoke in such explicit ways. There's a famous Sicha Amzu Yetzar Vayikra. 
where, where the Rebbe goes on at length about how the Yid is the, you know, Hayyitachan to speak like that and to portray Hadebishter as sitting up in the Shamaim, counting sins until such time that it, uh, you know, the cup overflows and he, all of those types of things. The Rebbe said even the Satan couldn't have dreamt up the Holocaust. Okay, so that whole way of thinking is terribly antithetical to the Rebbe's view. Completely antithetical. Would that apply here too to Pittsburgh? One, wait, but here you're talking about uh, Misalto Misham now. Here you're talking about Jews who were in a show on Shabbos, etc. I mean, they were getting together to, 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 it's not, you can't, there's no, where's the Hechitim? So what's the, what's the argument? What, why, how could someone dear think that this has anything to do? Right. But the fact that it does say this in Rambam, and the fact that we do say it during the crisis, is there any truth to it? First of all, the point is, when something negative happens to you, you look into your own actions. So over here, people saying, looking at the victims into their actions, that halal is no right. place. No, I think everyone agrees with that. What about into our own actions? What does that mean? You know, to turn darkness into light is a very good idea. So the very least we can do from a tragedy is extract some motivation for life. So if death is a tragedy... It's because life is so precious. So, of course, that's always a good idea to uh, increase life. One of the ways you increase life is by taking a, a good look at yourself and seeing where can I be better. But, but that's, that's, not a, that's not an explanation for the tragedy. That's a healthy response to the tragedy. It's very different. It is interesting also, if you look at the Rebbe's own personal life, Every time the Rebbe suffered a personal loss, in a short period thereafter, the Rebbe started a campaign. With, with, with his mother, the Rebbe started the Rashi Sichas. With Yisrael Ayyulev, his brother, Tiferes Levi Yitzchak. With the Rebbe Tzachayim Mushka, a birthday campaign. And so on and so forth. And I think the understanding there is that these things create a void. They create a vacuum. And what energy, it doesn't go away of itself. That pain is inside you unless you extract it, unless you use its force to push you forward. And I think that has been really one of the defining factors of Jewish history and Jewish people in, in general. And in particular, throughout the Nasius, that seems to be the message that's throughout. To, after a period of mourning, to then take that energy and to use it constructively as a springboard for greater uh, motivation. So here's, I think, one of the thing, one of the ways Hasidus explains. It says in Tanya, light is greater after darkness. Right? That's from Shlomo Melech. Sadness increases happiness. The happiness after sadness, and wisdom is greater after foolishness. And the obvious question is, is light greater after darkness? What? There's more light. It's more appreciated. So out. most people will say it's more appreciated. But that's not what Taylor is saying. Taylor is saying there's a greater light. So I think the, the, the simple explanation, when you're in the dark, your eyes, the lens uh, opens up as wide as it can because it is desperate for a little bit of light. So it wants to catch whatever tiny amount of light there is. Now all of a sudden you turn on the light. There's, morning. <laughs> yeah, yes. there's more light than before coming into your eye. Why? Because the hunger, the desperate, the desperate 
need for light increases your capacity, and then you take in more. The same is true with sadness. Grieving means you yearn for life. You grieve a loss of life. So your desire for life, your passion for life, increases. Then when you go back to living, it's with a whole different intensity and, 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 and passion. And the same is true with wisdom after foolishness. If you have an, a lack of understanding and it bothers you, you want to know, you want to understand, that hunger opens up your capacity and then when the wisdom comes, you take in more than you would have had you not had this. Right? And so the what, same would apply to grief. Grief. So grief means your hunger and your desire for life is now reached a desperate level. What do you do with that? You take all that desperate hunger for life and you live more. You live deeper. You live so so you can't skip the grief. Just like you can't skip the question that leads to the answer. And yeah. And there's there's just to add to that. Um when 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 we talk about doing a mitzvah in the honor of someone, you know, again, cynically you could say, Oh, here's the rabbi, you know, somehow pushing mitzvahs. Because that's what he does. He's trying to generate greater Jewish observance and he's utilizing this as an opportunity to further that spiritual aim or agenda. That's not the case at all. That's not what's happening here. That's saying. not what's happening here at all. When a shliach pushes the community to do a mitzvah, it's actually not so that their spiritual observance grows. It's so that the spiritual influence of the departed grows. In other words, the, as the way Hasidus explains this, as I understand it, there's a fundamental difference between neshama, soul, before it enters this world and after it returns, to when it exists in this world with a body, which is essentially the interface between spiritual and material. The body allows the soul to influence this world. Without a body, you can't smile, you can't lend a hand, you can't study, you can't feel another's pain, you can't extend the hand, etc., etc., so, so, so the the loss that the the loss that the soul experiences when it leaves, which I mentioned before, on the one hand it feels liberated, but on the other hand it does lose. What it loses is an opportunity to continue to impact this physical universe, which, as Chassidus speaks about at great length, is the purpose and the objective of an entire experimental creation. And so, when we do a mitzvah in the memory and the honor of that soul, that soul continues. To ascend, when you talk about the term ascend, we're obviously not talking about going to a higher place physically. What we mean is it, it continues to experience momentum and motion, whereas otherwise it would be stationary. It wouldn't have that momentum or motion because it lacks the mechanism to generate that momentum. But when we operate as its hands and its feet and so on, in this physical world and influence the world, it elevates the neshama. So rather than the neshama remain static, or and when it, upon its return, when we do a mitzvah, we allow it to progress further and upward and onward. So I think it's important to make that point that the the, the rabbi, the shliach, or Judaism, when it talks about doing a mitzvah in the memory of someone, 
It's not just utilizing, utilizing the opportunity and saying, appreciate the preciousness of life because you've encountered mortality and recognize how important every mitzvah is, although that's true as well. It's saying there's something you can actually do for that soul. I think that's a radical idea, and I think that's something that people find deeply heartening in moments like this, because the obvious, the biggest question of all is, how can I, we want to know what can I do, how can I help, what can I contribute? To the soul itself, what we can contribute is doing a mitzvah, linking the mitzvah to their memory, to their honor, and thus generating further spiritual ascent and elevation. One, one of the way, another way of saying that is, some people accomplish a great amount of good uh, in their life. Some people accomplish more in their dying. Like um, 11 people died in, in that shul in, in Pittsburgh. In New York, how many people died that same day? But their death didn't add anything to the, to the conscience of the country, to the, to the morality of the country. So, in a sense, Shleim HaMelech says, to have lived a productive life and then have your death also be meaningful. So, even death itself is not purely a waste of life. You can accomplish so much. So, when, when we talk about the victims of the Holocaust as, as martyrs, hmm. Kedashim. Kedashim. How are they Kedashim? They didn't do anything holy. They just got killed. I always wonder, I, I still wonder, yeah, why, why is the person who died in the Holocaust, who didn't practice a Jewish lifestyle, and not only that, is a statistic. We don't know his name or what he, how he died. Why is he called a Kaddish? Mm -hmm. You would think a martyr is someone who is given a choice. Right. right. And bravely faces death rather than sin. Rather than. They weren't asked. They weren't given a choice. So I think, I haven't seen it anywhere. The human instinct is self-preservation. So when a person says, no, I'm not going to do this, even if it costs me my life, wow. That's bigger than life, right? But to some degree... You're being told to give up something precious, and you don't want to. That's not so super rational. It's a choice you made, and, uh, and, and that's the reward, is the fact that you get to make the choice. Yeah. But what happened with the Holocaust is that six million Jews knew that they are going to die because they're Jews. What would the human instinct do? What do you expect a human being to feel or, or, or how, how do you expect them to react to such a thing? The human instinct is, I regret being Jewish. What do I need this for? So I resent being a Jew. It never happened. I mean, even Daniel Pearl, he was dying because he was a Jew. He didn't resent it. He's proud of it. He was proud of it. So, so, so the, the martyrs of the Holocaust are bigger than life because they didn't succumb to that natural human instinct. If I'm dying only because I'm Jewish and it's not even my biggest passion in life, then I should resent it.
I don't resent it. I'm singing Animamin, and I'm and I'm happy to be a Jew. That is literally superhuman. And that was Pittsburgh. Huh? And that's Pittsburgh. No, so I'm saying that the 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 significance of death also shouldn't be overlooked. How much do you accomplish in your life, and how much did your death accomplish? And that's what martyrdom means. Your death influenced the world as much or maybe more than most people in their lifetime can influence the world. So that's why the reaction, like you're saying, let's increase light for that for that neshama so that that death can have worth meaning is an effective yeah sorry just to come back to an earlier point because when we're talking about mitzvahs in general again i want to come back to the theme that the rebbe emphasized which was that there was a someone for example who passed away um while a shear was going on the rebbe said the way to memorialize an individual is to continue that very sheer. This idea of going to the very place, to the very theme, to the very idea, to the very act, that and utilizing that and expanding on that, I think in this case, in Pittsburgh, there's something very specific over here. And that is, if, if whoever's listening, specifically mitzvahs that increase sense of tefillah, davening, a mitzvah that increases the sense of coming together. These were individuals who, in their own, in their own way, maintained the minion, sustained the minion, were kind to one another. This idea of Am Yisrael Chai, this idea of Jewish pride and, 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 and so forth, those, those areas themselves where we were weakened should be the areas which we strengthen and we grow and we gain in momentum. Right. Yeah, amazing. And we have covered quite a lot over here. We've spoken about grief. We've spoken about a period of silence. We've spoken about anti-Semitism. We've spoken about this, this punishment and many other topics on the way. And uh, it's an, a fascinating and, and an amazing approach to this. Any closing remarks? <laughs> we shouldn't ever have to talk about this again. Death has accomplished its mission and it should be um, discontinued. Yeah, amen. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, uh, Rabbi Kalmanson. And uh, thank you for joining us, of course, being with us all the time, Rabbi Friedman. And uh, be sure to join us again for our next podcast of Ideas That Change the World. If you want to support It's Good to Know in the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. This is the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman. Changing your life for the better, one idea at a time. Like it, share it, and leave us a review. Tune in next week for more ideas that change the world. The world.